1: Welcome to the Wild Tales Podcast. I'm Jason Fox, and this series is all about adventure, resilience, and inspirational humans. The podcast is presented by the Book of Man and in partnership with Talisker, the single malt whiskey made by the sea. My guest today is Nims Dye Purger, better known as Nims, an incredible mountaineer who last year made headlines when he climbed the 14 highest mountains in the world in under seven months. He is also a mate of mine, a former Special Forces soldier and Gurkha who spent his entire life taking on the hardest challenges life can offer you. In the episode, we answer some questions that you've asked me on Instagram. I'm going to be sending a bottle of Talisker to the top question. Here we go. I hope you enjoy the episode. So here he is, the man, the myth, the legend, Nims Die Persia, good friend of mine um, and someone who's achieved an awful lot from joining the military the special forces and then leaving as well so mate I have like a few obligatory questions and and at this time of not this time of year during this year the first question is lockdown (laughs) what have you been up over the last few months you know since it's been sort of like wavering in and out of restrictions and then no restrictions and restrictions again
2: yeah, my Fox is obviously, you know, so good to see you here. Even it's a, it's a Zoom meeting and so glad to be doing this podcast with your buddy. Yeah. Going into a question, you know, fortunately I should say I have been very, very lucky because, um, I had to write this book, um, Beyond Possible and, um, I really didn't realize, you know, how much of a hard work maybe, may you know, you have written in a couple of books now and all that. Mm. But yeah, you know, most of my time was spent on, on writing this book and I just wanted to you know, give 100% and, you know, because it's also quite a scary moment because once you write the thing, it, it is black and, and white and you cannot change that. So of course it needs, you know, time, you know, dedication and, and commitment and all that. So yeah, that's where all
1: my time where uh, kind of in you know, a UT lies. Cool, that's awesome. Um, I'm looking forward to the book coming out. Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll look forward to reading it. Also, the the common ground there is you've been working with Matt Allen, who writes mine as well. He's a good guy. Um,
2: exactly, mate. He's awesome. And then yeah, we've been like you know you know talking and all that. And yeah, it's just good. Cool. Your book is just out as well, isn't it, buddy? You know, so it's, it's Yeah, they came cool. out last week, yeah. So. Well, you haven't sent me one, Foxy, nor you want me to pay. Hey,
1: I've only me. just got, do you know what? I've only just got back from Scotland and I've, <laughs> I've literally, my head's on fire. I've got a box of books and one of them's got your name on it. Well, awesome. it's got my name on it, but it'll have your name on it soon because I'll write in it. Cool. And yes, brother. The other issue is, the issue I've got at the moment is the post office here, to go and post something like a parcel, you have to queue up for two hours. It's horrendous. So everyone's like, oh, can you send me a book? I'm like, ah, each time I get a different book request. It's a two-hour wait at the post office queue to go and pack it up and send it on. And yeah. Anyway, mate, this is all about you. Um, I don't I don't know how we're going to fit in what you've done in, in an hour. So what we're going to have to do is sort of, <laughs> I, I will sort of guide us through this hour. And when I think we need to move on to the next bit, that's what we'll do, because otherwise we could be talking for five hours and everyone will be asleep. But the, well, they won't be asleep at the end of it, because it's a pretty awesome story that you've got. Especially, uh, I, I think last time I spoke to you it was only a couple of weeks ago, and you phoned me some dod- from some dodgy number in Europe. Yeah. Because you phone because he was basically just so everyone knows Nims has been doing stuff on what's it called? It's called speed flying. So yeah, just you know, yes. coming up with a with a with a, with a propeller that propels him along he did some sort of turn and his phone fell out of his pocket and he broke it and then yeah so he's been doing some crazy stuff breaking phones and that but mate take us back to the beginning what what was growing up for you like as a kid and obviously you grew up in um yeah Nepal, in,
2: Nepal, in the you know foxy so it was it was really humbling you know kind of, you know, upbringing in Nepal. Um, I was born in a a really poor family, buddy. Uh, But um, once my brother joined the Gurkhas, which is quite a big thing in Nepal. Um, Mm -hmm. And after that, you know, they sent me to a bit of, you know, like uh, a kind of, you know, a bit more developed in a town, so Chitwan. So I grew up in Chitwan, which is the most flat and warm part of, you know, Nepal. Uh, So, yeah.
1: So ironically, you grew up in the flattest part of Nepal. Yeah, nothing so to do with mountains. mountains.
2: <laughs> no,
1: that's bizarre. Um, so when um, did you say your brother was in the Gurkhas?
2: Yes, mate. I had two brothers, and both of them were uh were with the Gurkha Infantry. So yeah, and my dad was in the Gurkhas as well.
1: Oh uh, right, awesome. So it's obviously a, a family tradition to do the do the Gurkha thing.
2: Yeah, mate. So it's a big thing for us. So yeah.
1: And um, when did you join up? How old were you when you decided to to leave home and join the military?
2: Yeah, so I was 18 and a half when I, you know, started the selection, Foxy. And if I'm being completely honest, uh, I fell on my first Senegalica selection. Um, the, the DS, you know, didn't really like me. He's just like, yeah, you know. So, but I made it on the second attempt. Um, and that was when I was 18 and a half um and yeah uh, and from you know nepal and uh, you know back to Catrick in england doing you know our you know basic infantry training so
0: yeah
1: what is that journey like joining the gurkhas because it's a bit of a it's a bit of a mystery to the rest of us british forces folk unless we actually and you know i've known you for a while now but i've never really asked you and you there's a lot of mystery behind it isn't there because people think that you you travel miles and miles from yeah. home to wherever to somewhere else in Nepal and i don't know what the score is what is the score yeah so obviously
2: a lot of things have changed now foxy but you know in the past um, even in my time you know there would be a one selection in a year and there's only one selection a year and um, like normally like 30,000 people apply uh, even more of that in a year so yeah a lot of you know like young lads between 18 and a half to 21 um, come for this selection from all around the, like you know, Nepal from the country, and of course you go and and um, it is really tough selection, though, mate Because um, you can't just only be good; you got to have a bit of luck as well. And it's just like you know, super like yeah. challenging. It's just because of the number as well that people want to join the guy
1: and all. So yeah. yeah. So what was it? Was it quite a daunting thing? Because obviously you, you you grew up in Nepal, you probably I'd take it. English is not your strong language at the at at the beginning and then the next thing you know you're on a plane and you're flying to to the north of England to cataract to (laughs) to learn how to be a soldier in the British forces it must be it must be quite a daunting thing for I mean it was daunting for me just to travel down to the southwest and join the marines but
2: yeah
1: you're traveling across halfway across the world to do the same sort of thing really
2: May I'll tell you one thing for sure. You know, like when I flew on the plane from, obviously, Kathmandu uh, International Mm. Airport to to England, um, growing up, I would see, like, you know, my brothers, you know, they would pick the, uh, they would put the poster off in a big band, London Eye, you know, when they come in a holiday in Nepal, and I thought I was going to see one of those. But what happened was, as soon as we came out of the the plane, we were, you know, obviously pushing this in the coast. It, It was horrendous weather. Then... We didn't see anything like that. Then we went to like Catrick, which is up north of England. And um, as soon as we got out, it was like, you know, the wind is coming from the sideways and there was nothing like what I had expected. And I was like, there were only a couple of houses and, and and there were a lot of ship. And I was like, this is worse than Nepal. I
1: thought I was coming
2: to England, but yeah,
1: but yeah, man. Um, Best place to train for sure. <laughs> that must have been horrendous, you know, because obviously a lot of young lads and Nepalese guys yeah. want to join the Gurkhas because it's a well, you know, it's a well thought of force, and it, and rightly so. But also they do it because it's it's seen as a good opportunity, isn't it? Hundred percent, then- mate. Yeah yeah and and you know you come to what you think is a, a developed country and you're up north with more sheep than people and the weather is absolutely horrendous it must be a real, oh, a real
2: man. <laughs> was like, yeah yeah it was it was crazy but good man yeah
1: yeah yeah so then obviously you did how, how long did you serve in the gurkhas mate before you then went on to yeah. do selection i served with the gurkhas for six
2: years i did my first tour uh with uh with the garka as well as a close support for, for you know 40 commandos that's when i kind of knew about the sbs um and all that mm. uh, and the result of working with 40 commandos was you know i came back here changed my you know like the name you know for the briefing course which was up in harryford uh, but yeah. changed for that to pull and and went from there buddy
1: yeah because i remember when remember when you passed actually i was still because what year was that um, reminder. it was
2: 2009 May, December. Yeah.
1: Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Cause I'd just come back from Afghanistan and we'd, we'd heard that there was a, there was a, there was a Gurkha <laughs> that decided to come to pool, and that's like, an like, I don't, I think you were the first one, weren't you? Yeah. Yeah. And it, like, you know, it, it may, it, just so people know that are listening, you know, the Gurkhas are part of the British army and so predominantly the natural course for one to take on on selection is to go to the SAS, but Nims decided to do things differently, and he he came down to pool and had an amazing career in the Special Boat Service. But um, mate, tell us about your time in the SBS. I know obviously what it's like, but yeah, of, <laughs> yeah, know, for a lot of people. Well, it?
2: well it's, you know, as you know, Foxy, you know, it's um, of course, you know, it's, it's awesome, it's challenging, and all, but it's also tough, you know. You're always away, you know, most of the time. And, you know, there were like certain time in a year that where you are probably home for like, you know, 30, 35 days. And then you all know, and yes. But, you know, to be honest, what I got from all this, you know, kind of, in know, working with the Special Forces was, you know, operating in a very stressful environment. The training that I got, you know, was kind of, I took forward on 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 the big mountains and all I think it's it's just cool, you know hanging around with you know pretty much i would i would say you know most of the decent blokes, you know, yeah, so you know of course you know wherever you go, you always find you know all all that and all, but yeah, generally you know the guys were good and all that, so yeah, enjoyed it, and uh, moving into into the next next part of my career, I think, but yeah overall got, it was good. Mate, you got any,
1: have you got any funny stories about anything that happened on tour or? Anything you can share with us? Um but hey Foxy, you know,
2: you know, we're not allowed to say so much on this one, <laughs> on this on this stuff, but yeah. You know, maybe I think well, I can definitely tell you one thing. Um I did well, this obviously, you know, like uh, we're doing a, a you know you know a jump. And uh, one of the really funny thing, you know, what the guys you know, find it crazy was a jump of the aircraft. Um, and realized it, it was a malfunction on my canopy. Yeah. And Edith, so we're, we're, we're
1: just, just quickly, well, what well, for people listening, we're talking about a parachuting incident now. Yeah. A jump is a parachuting incident. So you've looked up and you've got a malfunction, mal-function. which is horrendous.
2: Yeah. <laughs> so when you get malfunction, what you do is, you know, you straight away, you know, pull the reserve. But what I did was I thought I was pretty cool and calm, just trying to get, you know, like get that message across. So I just get into the radio and say, all calls, all calls. Names cut away, and then I did the cut away, and obviously lads were taking the piece out of that. Why am (laughs) I so many things?
1: (laughs) So basically, you basically instead of like just getting on with it and cutting away, you 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 told everyone else what you were going to do, which yeah, just put that into perspective. I would not have cared about the lads and told them anything. I'd have just got on with getting rid of that out the the crap parachute and pulled out the reserve so yeah cool nice calm and collected um mate well i'm gonna start moving into the the proper crux of um what we're here to talk about when talk to me about mountaineering and when it started for you because obviously you know you grew up in the flatlands of um the lowlands of nepal so how did it suddenly become a thing for nims to want to climb mountains and then not only just want to climb them, become unbelievably good at it? Um, Yeah, so Foxy, you know, as you just said, I had
2: no idea or not even thought of, you know, like, you know, climbing any mountains at all. But once I served with the Special Forces, you know, going around the world, of course, you know, I do stand out because, of course, I'm from Nepal. I'm obviously in a brown and all that. So people would ask, you know, where are you from? And I would say, hey, I'm from Nepal, you know, the Gurkhas. And they would say, oh, you are from Nepal. Have you, like, climbed Everest? As if, you know, like, every, you know, like, the Nepalese or the Gurkhas, you know, climb Everest. I was like, no. And they would say, have you seen it? I was like, no. <laughs> at the end, I was just sick of saying no to so many people. So I was like, yeah, listen, you know, let me go and, you know, see, you know, Everest at least. So I went for the trekking um, uh, kind of, you know, journey to Nepal. I was only 29 years old. And and I remember my at that point, um, um, as we come through the Namche Bazaar, it's one of the, the villages you go through the Kumbu Valley, beautiful, yeah. um, 3,200 meters. And then we saw a big mountain called Amadablam, which is the most technical mountain in the Himalayas, which I didn't know at that point. And I just asked my guide, I was like, hey, brother, can we climb that mountain? See, you know, and he just laughed at me. He's like, names, people who climb Everest. Even fails on that mountain, but anyway, I just wanted to feel like you know how how it feels to, to to reach to the summit of a peak and all that. so I eventually convinced the guide that you know take me to one mountain at least. so I remember my um we were wearing crampon and walking in the grass, he was teaching us like, okay, this is how you should be you know walking with the crampons and all that and um yeah, eventually managed to climb you know six thousand two hundred meter peak um yeah i was I was really you know kind of you know. In, in the air of my career, I was 29 years old, but mate, it started from there and I never looked back.
1: What, were you in the Gurkhas then or were you in the Special I, Forces?
2: I was in Special Forces, buddy, yeah, in Pool.
1: <laughs> yeah. So it's quite late to start to introduce yourself to the mountains, especially, you know, most people would be like, oh, Nims is a Gurkha, I bet he, he yeah. climbed Everest when he was 10 and all this sort of <laughs> thing. <laughs> You, you what was that mountain called? The first one, can you it's remember? It's called um, Lubuta East, and that's where the beginners really you know,
2: start in in, 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 at the start of their you know mountaineering career and all that. Yeah. So yeah.
1: And so that was obviously. Did do you think for that first mountain? Do you think you were hooked immediately into what mountaineering is?
2: Yeah, yeah, hundred percent, Foxy. And you know, at that point, you know, when you like, you know. You know, come from the Gurkha, and when you are in the Special Forces, you know, doing and you, know, you 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 do do a lot of stuff over there, and then you kind of also think you know you are invincible. Um, then when I went over there, my everything was like you know really you know, things put it, you know became perspective for me. You know, it becomes very clear that you know we are very small and all that. But yeah, it was um it was kind of you know that experience. But also when I reached to the summit, man, the the view was so amazing. It was still in you know, a freezing cold. But the freshness that you can get from that, you know, elevation, it was like crazy. Mm. Um, so, yeah. And after that, I started, you know, doing more and more. So
1: what was, um, when did you, when did you do Everest for the first time? Because okay. I know you've done it a few times and you've got yeah. to put, put the, the prod, project possible thing to one side a minute you've already done everest a few times and you've already got a (laughs) few world records so yeah let's talk about the first time and then talk about your journey with everest going forwards
2: cool all right so my first everest was in 2016 um it was completely unplanned i had no kind of idea whatever i was gonna like even thought of doing it but what i had done was you know Foxy i just came from one tour and i was meant to be going on another tour it was back to back and I was expecting that
1: you know tools uh, of, that's tours of duty in the special forces for people. Yeah, it. yeah, go on, sorry.
2: <laughs> yeah. So I had just came from one, and I was supposed to be going on the other one. And then what happened was, um, you know, out of a sudden, I was supposed to be getting only three weeks leave, but I got four weeks. And I was like, and bear in mind, I had planned to go on a holiday with my wife, you know, initially and all that. But then when they give me four weeks, I was like. I cannot just go on a beach and just like chill out and do nothing and I was just looking for what can I do and then every expedition was happening at that at that same point uh, the only problem was I had no money and the other problem was I was like one month behind in the rest of the season's mountaineer so I was like one can I do it you know two like okay if I go and fail, you know, there's a massive, you know, reputational risk as well. Anyway, long story short, you know, you can find more on the book. But um, I decided to go to Everest. Uh, you know, climbed it very, very quick, uh, and rescued a climber from 8,450 meters. Uh, so basically, this girl, Sima Goswami, she was left, you know, behind by her guides, by her team, and yeah, and of course, and you know, I couldn't walk past her, so I rescued her down. Um, and it's still obviously. Nobody knew who I was and all that, but within four days of you know summiting Everest, I was in operations in you know, a kicking door. So, yeah, that's, that was my first Everest expedition.
1: But the, the, you brush over it quickly, but it's mental because basically, just to put it into perspective, Nims was on leave from doing one tour of Afghanistan in the Special Forces and decided he wasn't going to go on holiday with his wife, who he's still married to, and I don't know how. But he, <laughs> But he was gonna basically. Some, how did you get the money to go and do the?
2: Oh, the you're right. So I went to the bank and I told obviously them. I mean, I, I I need a 15k to buy a, a car, so they get me a a 15k loan. I still remember my, it was 3.9 uh, 9% interest rate, and yeah, <laughs> emptied my saving and everything. So yeah.
1: So Nims took himself took himself <laughs> to Nepal, basically emptied the bank thinned his missus out for a holiday and went climbing. And then the process ended up rescuing someone. It's uh, And all this whilst on leave from the SBS. And he was actually not allowed. It, <laughs> theoretically, you're not allowed to travel. You're supposed to stay in the country and just sort of like chill out and yeah. do, not do things that are too dangerous because you're you're seen as an asset to the, the yeah, strategic capability of the British Special Forces. But anyway, so that was your first trip up and you rescued the... Um, <laughs> The young lady that was basically left there to die, wasn't she? Yeah,
2: mate. So yeah, now she's back home. You know, she's alive with her family and all that.
1: How did how did that rescue go? Oh, mate, that was
2: so so tough. You know, at first I thought I wasn't. You know, I had kind of I wasn't sure because it was my first time. Then as soon as you know I started cracking on, you know, like where you go into operational mode, you know, like Foxy, you know, you just you know get on with it, isn't it? So. Yeah, and just to give you the um, an example, my um, how how fast I rescued her. It only took me ninety minutes to rescue from eight thousand four hundred fifty meters to seven thousand nine hundred fifty meters. It's like almost five hundred meters at the death zone. Yeah, and um, and and for those who doesn't understand to to explain you the scale of the rescue. Once I I brought her down to camp four, I gave it to the to the rescue team member and they were like five of them and they took two days to bring like you know her from camp four to camp two so you know see see you can you can kind of you know, relate how tough it would be
1: so how did you um how did you get her down to the um to what to the other guys? you walked and dragged it down just dragged it down yeah yeah so you were at what 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 height
2: 8, was 1, she at? 8,000? metres. So that's like way, you know, in the death zone. I think there are only f- four mountains above, you know, 8,000 metre peak in that height. So, yeah.
1: yeah. So you were, because you, I think you summited that on your own, didn't you? <laughs> yeah. On that
2: yeah. Division. Yeah.
1: you, you were sat on the top of Everest on your own, weren't you? Taking in the view for a bit. Yeah, I
2: was there, but It was super, like you know, cool. I was because we reached the summit in a in a bit in the dark. Um, so at this point, I had a very like young, you know, um, you know, climbing in you know, a buddy. So he was he had never climbed Everest. He was a porter, but I just wanted to give him an an opportunity. So from next time, he could you know earn more. Yeah. So, but yeah, he, he kind of got me scared as soon as the wind picked up. So he left me from the summit and I said, yeah, fine. And you can go down. So I stayed for a bit longer and yeah, it was, it was a bit crazy though, man. You know, like,
1: yeah. <laughs> so then obviously, okay. So you've dragged her <laughs> off. Was there any, were people asking who you were? And obviously were you worried yeah. about, about that you were in the special forces and you were worried that you might get bubbled a little bit on yeah but you, you picked it up.
2: So what had happened was when I rock up at the at the Lukla, which is the gateway to this in you know, the big mountains mm. that was a month behind and I was you know, obviously in this tea house and the guy who was the the director and, and also producer of this biggest rescue you know filming that was going on, he happened to be sat next to me and he's like, hey what, what are you here for you here for the trekking And I was like no, I'm here for the expedition. And then he asked me, "Do you know you are like a month behind? Everybody's now waiting for the summit push almost." And I was like, "Yeah, yeah, I know." And he asked me, "What you do for a living?" And I said, "Oh, I'm a. i am I work as a as a paramedic in Royal London." <laughs> I'll I'll pause that part here, Foxy. So when I went over there, summited, and did all the rescue, my friend kind of know like because everybody were like, "Who's this guy? Who's this guy?" So my friend dropped the the s-bomb so soon, you know in the base camp you know people knew who i was and all that and then there were like loads of like media requests but what i get how i got away with that was like i said to them look you know i'm 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 a serving member of uk special forces if i get out on on a press or any news or anything else i'm gonna lose my job and if you want me to lose my job and my pension for you know for the rescue i did you know you do that guys but you know if you if you think you know it's genuine and if you want to protect my job and all do not write anything do not talk about anything and then everybody screw the nut now over there mate but yeah people kind of you know like internally knew about it
1: so that was basically you you sort of like (laughs) basically called them out and you were honest with them but said don't write anything and that's that's, yeah it's good that they didn't um mate you came back what Tell us about the other, the, the next sort of time Mid- of Everest.
2: Then you so, started... yeah, Foxy, you know, 2017, the Gurkhas were back again, trying to climb Everest. Uh, so this was a big mission for the British military. Uh, the Gurkhas were trying to, you know, climb Everest in order to, you know, uh, tribute the respect to the Queen and Crown for serving more than 200 years with the British British military so 2015 the expedition you know got failed because massive earthquake was over there so many people were you know like got killed and all that yeah so you know fortunately you know the gurkha expedition team was lucky so nobody you know died in 2015 there were some you know some injuries and all that so 2017 was in a kind of you know going back there to complete the 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 incomplete mission uh, so I was one of the instructor over there, and what happened was the highlight of 2017 was normally on Everest, there will be a fixing team, um, and then the job of the fixing team is like they would go up, set the fixed lines, um, you know, before in hand, so that the rest of the mountain is, like, they would, you know, obviously they put the hand and they would climb. Yeah. So 2017, um, the fixing team couldn't set the fixed lines to the summit. And I was like, wow, okay, you know, what does that mean to 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 me and then to us? And I was like, as everyone else, when you say you are a Gurkha and the people think Everest is in your back garden and, and being as a Gurkha and not being able to climb Everest, I felt like there was a huge reputational risk. And the second cause was like, when we ever going to get another chance, which will be like the third attempt to climb Everest,
0: Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/people today.
2: Using you know, British taxpayers' money, mm. so the answer was no. So I was like, you know what, I'm gonna have to step up. So I step up and I said, look, I'm gonna set the fixed lines, and everyone was like, who is this guy? Obviously, people didn't know. So yeah, but, you know, we had like a bunch of you know, serpas and all, and the first time, like, the seraphs and Gurkhas kind of you know, worked together. And we went. We set the fixed lines not only for our team, but you know for for the rest of the seasons Mountaineer, and and that's what it actually you know made the whole expedition successful. Um, yeah, and the story goes on there. So I got back down to Base Camp and then back to Kathmandu. We parted with the boys and all. And um, after that, you know, I had a secret mission, which was to you know climb Everest, Lotse, and Makalu in the fastest you know time possible, uh, which I had planned around two weeks. Yeah. A long story short, I went up again um, after, you know, having a massive celebration and partied with the boys. Then I climbed Everest again, then Lhotse and Makalu in just five days. And that's like stopping for two days um, in Namche Bazaar, which is like, you know, the, the kind of, you know, like the, the yeah, capital yeah. of Kumbu Valley to, to party for two days. Otherwise, I could have done that in three days. And that's when I realized, wow. Um, yeah. And at the end, and... and when I was at the, at the Makalu, which is the world fifth highest mountain, after climbing these three mountains in five days, I was at the base camp, waiting for the helicopter to come and pick me up. But yes. the weather was so bad, the and, and and the helicopter couldn't come. And what I did was I decided to run. So I run from base camp to the road end, which normally takes you know six to eight days worth of trekking, depending upon the fitness. And mm-hmm. you know I did with like with my team, but only out of 4 only one made it with me and i completed i finished that whole journey in just 18 hours after climbing all those big mountains and that's when i realized okay i
1: think i have got something <laughs> you think you have something so did you get um was that did you get a record <laughs> on that occasion
2: yeah so i got the record i got three world records um, but you know one of the, the the good one was you know climbing everest lotse and makalu in 5 days yeah, uh, you know, and the, and the other one was you know climbing Everest and let say in just 10 hours, 15 minutes. And that record was in you know, a broken, super, super accidentally, man. I didn't even knew like there was a record. <laughs> Apparently, the, the previous record was 20 hours and um, I just broke
1: about half. That's awesome. So do you think, is that when the Project Possible was born in your head?
2: Yes, yes, you are right, buddy. So after that, I got back into pool, and I was in the mountain troop So you know, I was kind of you know, put in, into in charge of you know, you know, mountain rip, uh in, in the service. And um, the first thing I proposed the pool was, hey guys, since I'm here, you know, like you know, my job is to you know go out, you know, you know, like develop my skills, find out what's out there, and then and, and pass on to the blokes. Um, can I, I? just need eighty days off. But in this eighty days, I'm gonna go and climb top five highest mountain in the world. And it's like in Everest, K2, Kanchenjunga, Lhotse, and Makalu. At first, you know, like the service was excited, but then they realized it's such a huge risk. And um, unfortunately, you know, they couldn't you know take the risk. Yeah. We then made me decide to to leave the
1: pool. <laughs> so yeah. So then, so you left. <clears throat> you left because of wanting to do project possible so when did, it, when did it when did it turn into instead of it being the five highest mountains when did it turn into the 14 8 so pound, I, meter I put, plus mountains
2: yeah so Foxy, i put my notice in i realized that i was like yeah i don't need to have time frame now you know i'm 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 my own boss i've got one year free if i can do that so i started looking into it like why climb only like five mountain, you know? Yeah. I'm just going to climb all the beds and peak and I just need probably seven months to do it. So, yeah, I just went full in.
1: <laughs> you went full in. I mean, the f- I knew about it when you were sort of planning it. Obviously, we'd met yeah. each other and bumped into each other and we were chatting. And then I remember I came to the Nepalese embassy in London with yes. you. For your presentation. And that was where I think you had the backing of the Nepalese government, government, you know, raising funds was difficult, wasn't it?
2: Yeah, you know, I think that the hardest part of this whole mission was, you know, the funding, uh, because, you know, no one would really believe that you know, it is possible. And and when people like, okay, the previous, you know, record is nearly eight years, how are you going to do that in seven months, you know? And uh, yeah, it was it was really hard, but you know, I kind of, you know, felt like as soon as I go and start, you know, climbing this mountain in the manner and, 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 you know, style that I have said I would do it, I was just hoping that you know, people will support this, and and it would take only one million people to just give one pound, mm. and the project would be funded. And I had that kind of a you know, vision. So, but me, you know, like yeah, massive. You know, thanks. You know, you guys came over there, and you know, like the the government were trying to support. Um, but yeah, it was kind of you know, like as soon as I started ticking up boxes and climbing one mountain after another, and there was more crowdfunding, the sponsorship started coming in slowly, and
1: uh, yeah. Just to just to put that into perspective for people, obviously, Nims had this an amazing idea to climb the 14 highest peaks in the world. The last record or the quickest it had ever been done was around eight years. And he was proposing to do it in a season, which is seven months. And so when it comes to it, there was a lot of interest for people what, thinking about sponsorship. But then when they looked into it, they were like, this is just absolutely mental He's probably gonna die doing it, so we can't really be seen to to fund someone's demise and death. So that's where people bottled it a little bit. But there were people that came through and sponsored you to get it to get the ball rolling, I suppose. How much did it how much did it all cost Wait, in I the think,
2: end? Uh, well, it cost a bit more than expected. Um <laughs> the first figure I had put was, you know, around seven hundred and fifty K. And it's purely because of, you know, like um you know, the rescue that I did, you know, missing the, the weather window and you know like the Sisapangma being close to all of us and all that. Uh, um but hey, yeah. So it, it wasn't a cheap expedition and, and that's me doing the expedition in almost a a pikey style. You know, I didn't have like massive support, I didn't have much, you know, like that. It was just like in you know, a bare skin in terms of you know the the logistical support you would ideally get when you are going for you know this in you know, a big kind of you know like extreme you know world record in you know, a breaking
1: process or endeavor. but hey so what um <clears throat> so anyway you know money came. money started to come in you did a few charity fundraising things i remember going to see you at the the uh royal geographic society yeah. that was that was really cool in fact actually It was still, you know, this, this whole thing was quite a pipe dream. And I can remember there was a basically Nims was presenting at the RGS in London. And a a lot of us went along, a lot of, you know, guys will know him from the service went along. And I remember there was a Q and a at the end and this guy, I don't know who it was, was like that. So what Nims, what, what happens if you don't do it? And it was like, it said something that was, it was a phrase from another planet. Nims was like, what, you yeah, about? you were saying like, you know, what
2: happens yeah. Nim, if you can't do it, if you can not do it in like seven months, let's say because of the weather, you know, the, the climbing is so extreme that, you know, there are so many issues with the weather, the wind speed, maybe you are good and your team is good, but then the, the objective danger, the, the environment, you know, you probably can do in like, you know, eight months or a year. Yeah, yeah.
1: And you know like what me. I said. Yeah, you're <laughs> Nah, what you want? I don't even understand what you're ta- I, what you asking me. me to do it?
2: <laughs> yeah, so I said, you know, the mission is 14-7. And as soon as I go, like seven months beyond, I found my mission. It was. Just stopped yeah, it there. It
1: was cool. It was. It was a, in unbelievable confidence, but, and rightly so, because you, you actually did it. And what, how long did it take you in the end? Um, did in six months, six days, buddy.
2: And that's like, you know, guiding people on three, a thousand meter peak. And normally if you guide on, you know, a thousand meter peak, it takes, you know, at least a month to, you know, take people. So mm. a lot of my time were going on that, you know, guiding stuff because, you know, we didn't have the proper funding. So was trying to make a bit of money from there for the project. And yeah. there was so many political issues mate. you know, yeah, it was crazy, crazy stuff going on. Um, yeah. Hence why, but it's still, Yeah. Six months, six days, Foxy. There you go. And
1: what was, what were the first few mountains that you climbed <clears throat> during project? So I
2: did, um, so I did um, Annapurna, um, Dhaulagiri, Kanchenjunga, yeah. Everest, Lhotse, and Makalu. So I climbed Nepal's six eight thousand meter peak in thirty one days, and that's when people were like, "Wow." Yeah, um, and one of the thing what it also got the attention for the people was I climbed Everest, Lhotse, and Makalu, which is like the world first, fourth, and fifth highest mountain in just forty eight hours, and that's when people <laughs> were like, "Wow!" And then that's when you know, like you know, the biggest sponsors started coming in and all yeah. of that. So, yeah,
1: it was impressive, and you you obviously took that iconic photograph as well, which got stolen by the world's media of oh, everyone viewing to get up onto the top of a. Uh, Mate,
2: that's the problem, isn't it? With uh, with this big media and all that, you know, they don't know how hard it you know, it is to take the picture up at that elevation. Your your fingers are freezing. You have to bother. You got to make that an effort. And then, people were just using my image without credibility. And I was like, come on, you know, I'm I'm, I'm dying for funding here. Yeah. At least do some like you know favor, or at least pay for it. You know, maybe whatever it is, you know, yeah. there will be funding coming to the to the, to that's the, the a, project.
1: Uh, Mate, that's a lesson learned there for, on your part. Don't. <laughs> Don't bang it up on social media.
2: <laughs> yeah, but I I also didn't know that it's gonna be that famous as well.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Lessons learned, mate. Lessons learned. Anyway, uh, mate. Um, I've got to ask you a few because obviously, I mean, I can't. We can't talk about every single one because it's just yeah. a, it's an it's an immense um story, and your book's coming out anyway, so that's something to look forward to. But I've got to ask about the infamous K two because it is it's. It is a killer, isn't it? You know, it's 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 renowned for killing people. It's one of the hardest mountains in the world to climb. So can you just tell us a little, little bit about K2? So
2: yeah, so K2 is, you know, it's it's called a savage Mountain, you know, one in four dies over there and it's one of the in you know, extreme in you know, eight thousand meter peak. So what happened last year was um I was in Pakistan, you know, trying to climb all this in you know, a you know, you know, five, 8,000 meter peak. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I came like you know, in, in the K2 base camp and what had happened was more than like 95% of the people had already given up because it was so dangerous and it was so, you know, risky. Uh, but then there were like 5% of the people who were like, you know, still waiting at the base camp, you know, hoping that, you know, me and my team would come and, and make this happen. So even though like for me, I went to K2 Base Camp, I was trying to climb the Broad Peak, which is just a neighboring peak. Mm. But then when everybody was kind of expecting that, Foxy, you know, you feel like, okay, if I don't do that, you, know, you feel like you are kind of you know, letting their hope die, you know. So I changed my plan to go and um, set the fixed lines on K2 uh, with my team members. And yeah, it was just a full-on Nepalese team. And we went up and made the impossible possible. And after that, you know, all the people also like submitted um, to the summit of K2. Um, but the sad part is, Foxy, you know, I, I saw like some of the people making like, you know, documentaries and all that from there. And there's no mention of, you know, like me and my team or even like anything. And that's when I was like, come on, you know, but that's the sad part. But yeah, I mean, after that, yeah, summited K2, got to base camp directly, parted pretty much, you know, most of the night. Only had three hours slept, went and finished the final one straight from base camp to the summit. So
0: yeah,
1: unbelievable, mate. What is, what is, <laughs> what makes K two so dangerous? Is it the weather? Is it technical? Is it it's all both, of the...
2: mate? It's both. It's, it's it's technical as well. It's super steep and it's it's also the weather. The weather is unforgiving um and all. So yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. That's awesome. And then obviously. I'd like to talk about the um, <clears throat> the issue with the Chinese when you were trying to get up. Is it Shishpanya?
2: So what had happened in Shishpanma okay. was
1: <laughs> I can never pronounce it. Mate,
2: like, when right. the mountainists like they struggled, mate. So um, the Chinese government had closed the mountain for everybody else, and they have done in the pre- like like in 2018 as well, and they did it in 2019 as yeah. well you know, like how Chinese government are, I mean, they don't listen to anyone, it doesn't matter even if it's from US government or whatever it is, they do whatever the, you know, like you know, they want. So yeah. I mean, for me, I was trying to get this permission and it was so, so hard. And uh, I really felt like if I go through the British channel, I will not go anywhere else. So I, I decided to go through the Nepalese one as a neighboring country. And uh, I mean, yeah, I was pulling every string I could in a meeting, like, you know, prime minister, you know, foreign minister, tourism minister, like four or five, in you know, a meeting with the minister level in a, in a day. Um, but also this is when I kind of you know, realized, you know, the whole project become like people's project because I had made a post on, on social media. I was like, look, I have given everything. I, I don't have anything left. Yeah. Here are the emails for the Chinese authorities. If you can send them a letter or, or request. And a lot of people, you know, did that as well, you know, Foxy. And I think at the end, you Know Chinese Tibet Mountaineering Association was like, Yeah, Nims, uh, we'll give you the permission. And we went over there, and you know, Sisapangma was, of course, our last mountain. But what we did was, uh, you know, we we summited that in his style, and you know, it was almost like end of autumn, yeah. heading towards winter. And, um, well, the anniversary is in two yeah. days' time, buddy, yeah, yeah, so the yeah, so. But we we completely opened the new route as well in Sisapangma, you know. So yeah, it was crazy. Yeah, good, the good crazy.
1: It's an unbelievable achievement, mate. It really is. And I'm proud to, to know you. Um but what 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 do you think the main challenges were mentally and physically through the whole of that that project?
2: I think um so it was it was kind of you know, the, the mental issues comes in because my and I had to bother about this fundraising, you know, even when I was climbing. So I had the issues like you know the the fund, uh, fundraising, the logistical nightmare that I had to plan through, you know, like mom, my mom who is very close to me was in a she almost died in you know, a twice. Yeah, and you know there was of course you know the, the risks to my life as well. You know when I was you know operating some of the of the of the mountainous area, which I cover in much more in the details. Yeah, you know, like as you know, Foxy, you know, it was, it was a million things going, you know, at the same time. Uh, but what I felt like was, you know, there was no turning back and, and and I couldn't give up at this stage because, you know, I had the purpose and I had the love for the mountaineering and, and I had the purpose of why I was doing it. And those, you know, the, the love and, and the purpose and the mission, what it kind, it kind of keep me motivated. Um, but I must say, you know, climbing was the most easiest part of all this endeavor. <laughs> it was like long, a bit that like, everyone
1: thinks is hardest is the bit that you enjoyed and found easiest
2: yeah yeah man and I still remember it was so painful like when you were not sleeping for 19 days specifically in Pakistan and you're climbing at night and you are like just like you know every step sometimes you you, you would fall asleep and what I used to do was I used to just grab the snow and rub in my face and put them in my armpit just to stay awake yeah, and slap myself it was a torture mate and then you can take so much, you know. At some point, you were just like, "I wish the big avalanche comes and just just take me away. Everything, <laughs> every pain is go- gone then, and it's <laughs> not my fault." And yeah, it was, it was next
1: level. So basically, yeah, you weren't going to give up, but every now and again, this is how mental it is. Every now and again, you were yeah. hoping an avalanche to wipe you out. There we go. Yeah, and then it's it's, day, and
2: it's not your fault. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Uh, mate, you did have a team of guys with you. Can, yeah. you, can you name them? I think it's what they worth Yes, they're, man, they're, of they
2: course. Yeah, of course, mate. Because you know, with with a bigger endeavor like this, you need a solid team. You know, yeah. and uh, of course, you know, be as, as a leader, you got to be a team player as well. And, and if you cannot be a good team player, you can never be a leader. So our team was like, you know, it was unique. You know, even the guys didn't have much experience. Um, there was a like you know kind of a hunger in them as well, um, yeah. and everybody was you know fully in. We we're like a family, and uh, you know I had obviously Mi'kmaq David Serpa, who is my right hand man, and who was who have always been you know my right hand man. Then I had Galgen. I had Gesman. I had Lakpadendi, um I had Dawa, and yeah, so pretty much you know like the whole lot of the of, of the Nepalese you know mountaineering community behind, and and now. We're like a family, mate. So it's, it's yeah. good. It's good to bring that whole team up. And uh, yeah, the guys also managed to climb in an eight peak with me and all that. And it was a completely a you know, next level opportunity for them. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, what it worked out the most of was Foxy. You know, normally when people climb on these big mountains, they would take someone who have summited that mountain. Uh, because, you know, you can see the route. They know the route as well. And yeah. uh, it helps a lot. But then what I had done was I had put the guys in the mountain they hadn't climbed before. So it was also something for them as well. And we'd you know, no. I was like, we're not gonna lose in the mountain, you know, it's like navigation my SF is on the ball. So yeah. So yeah, I think that, that that kind of you know, like, you know, you know, plan really worked well for all of us. So yeah, it's yeah. good.
1: Did you have a good did you all have a good crack?
2: Oh mate, we yeah. We were like, you know, mate we were laughing. Of course it was painful, but then we yeah. would have, you know, nice parties as in when we could, you know, loads of like dancing.
1: <laughs> yeah. I've seen some of that on social media. Oh. it did look, I mean, it's, it's tough, but it looked awesome. And I'm, yeah, I'm pleased for all of you. Um, did you find, I mean, it's a long, long period of time. We'll sort of wrap up on the project yeah. now, but did you, did you find it difficult being away from the family? I mean, obviously, um, with you your mum my... being yeah. the way
2: she was. Yeah. So I have been away for like almost like, almost a year I would say with the training and all that and uh, and then I had a massive support from my wife and honestly if it was anybody else I would have probably been divorced and gone and all that but yeah she's been massive supporter and, and the, the bigger thing is like you know she doesn't really bother me she knows that I have you know my own like you know, issues you know yeah. big problems to go with and all that so she's been like massive supportive and even like from like when I said okay I'm gonna we mortgage this house, the only house we have, and we're gonna put you know further funding. <laughs> so yeah, but it's been you know really I have got really good family and all that, even my brothers, yeah. you know, and my mom and dad, you know. Obviously my mom passed away, but you know, at that point, you know, she was, you know, with me and all you know throughout all this journey. So yeah,
0: yeah.
1: it's
2: quite nice to have that, you know, backing, buddy.
1: Yeah, definitely. And um yeah, it is a it's testament to yourself and to all of the all of your family that have supported you coming in a way and, and Succeeding in what mo- many people thought was impossible, but you don't know what that word means, dear. So that's a good thing, mate. Right. Uh, mate, you've got. We're going to start wrapping it up a little bit, but you have written a book. It's called Beyond Possible. It come when's it come out? Mate, it's coming out on twelfth of November. Twelfth so. of November. That's yeah. great. In time for Christmas, I expect to see one with my name in it. It's coming in no way, brother. One hundred percent. Yes. Um, what do you, what do you hope the readers will take away from reading your book? Um,
2: so would, the biggest thing you know what I have you know written in the book is not really about it's just climbing mountains and all that. It's about the, the the journey, the endeavor. Everybody, you know, I believe, you know, they have their own mountains to climb in life, and uh, it's just you know the technique um you know the the mindset that i use to overcome the bigger of obstacles and stuff and i think people can relate themselves uh, in in this kind of you know, journey and then kind of you know, make it work for them uh, and just hopefully you know they can achieve their you know new possible through this it's for everybody else so yeah
1: okay that's awesome mate. I'm i'm looking forward to it i can't wait to read it and I know um, you know Matt's told me it's good as well. Obviously, he's going to say that because he writes it as well. But <laughs> I, I do trust him. He's a, he's he's done some he's done some really good books in the past. Yeah, <laughs> it's good. It's good, buddy. Mate, um, what's next for you? What is the next challenge? Because I know you, you you get bored quickly. So yeah. I know there's something going on.
2: So, um, K two winter. So K two is the only mountain above eight thousand meter peak. That it still remains unclimbed. You know, so many countries have tried to like put their name, like the, the Russians, the Spanish, the Italian, the well, French, everybody. Never been
1: climbed in the winter. Yeah. Right.
2: And um, I'm going there, brother. So I'm going there tomorrow. Are you? <laughs> I'm starting my yeah. So I'm that's why I'm like full on, man. And I, and I decided to do this last week. So my head has been on fire. And I'm back to where I was like two years ago, you know, trying to find the sponsorship, the funding and all that. Not sleeping at night, you know, all that is happening again, buddy. And I was like, why the hell I put myself into same conditions again? <laughs> I think it's, it's in me, buddy. So, yeah, I'm, I'm off there. That's awesome. Good there. luck, mate. Good luck. Anything else as well once that's cracked? Mate, after that, maybe we'll see, you know, maybe fly from, you know, a thousand meter peaks. we see. I don't know. It's, uh, you know
1: <laughs> I know it's like you're setting yourself up for something crazy. I don't know.
2: Yeah.
1: Um, Mate, I tell you what we're going to do now is obviously I put out on social media. Yeah. Uh, I ask people to send in questions that they want me to ask you. And um, the one that I read out gets uh, a, a bottle of talisker because obviously this is supported by okay. Talisker. yeah yeah that's awesome whiskey made by the sea so this is by someone on instagram called tanya dot vadejo okay. v-e-r-d-e-jo d-e-j-o yeah. her question is you've achieved some incredible climbing feats pushing the boundaries of what is possible in your guiding in your guiding experience working with many different people and nationalities what is the most unusual climbing ritual or superstition you have encountered
2: mm, oh are there God. any well i can't think of one to be honest that's a good question but yeah i can't really i, I need to go Are into there any are there any thought.
1: there are climbing rituals and superstitions though aren't there i know uh, the nepalese are quite superstitious and
2: yeah of course they, you know you like with it, yeah, what what we believe in, like you know, um, you know, the, in the mountain god, and you know, before we go and do any big climbs, you know, we do a big puja ceremony, yeah, and we basically, you know, you know, pray the mountain god for the safe passes um, and all that. Uh, but I think every mountainous kind of, you know, who have been into the eight thousand, they respect that kind of rituals, and uh, yeah, we all do because it's a good vibe and it's a good energy and well, all that.
1: What do you do on the rituals? What what do they consist of?
2: so basically you know you, you have this like you know a, a prayer the the prayer flax goes in, in in the directions, and there's a llama you know who kind of you know says the prayer up, yeah, and at the end you know you 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 end up drinking whiskey and all that
1: happy days we, awesome. we like we like climbing rituals, they sound great. <laughs> <fun>. <laughs> mate um thanks so much i mean we could we could have spent hours going through all of that, but as I look forward for everyone nim nim. Nims Die Persia's book comes out 12th of November, beyond possible. It's going to be an awesome read and you'll be able to find out. It will put a lot more flesh on the bones of this interview. But mate, thanks so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. And good luck with your trip away starting tomorrow.
2: Good. Thank you so much, Foxy, mate. Thanks for having me here. Uh, really appreciated, pal.
1: Thanks very much to Nims. Hope you enjoyed it. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast if you don't already. And follow me and the Book of Man for the latest news. Thanks again to Talisker for supporting this podcast. And thanks to you all for listening. Take it easy and I'll see you soon. Hold
0: up.